You need to be off of mute for us to hear you. <laughs> I don't know why I muted myself. <laughs> I've been too talkative usually. Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NefJC journal clubs. NefJC is the Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label, and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. Uh, I tweet at hswapnil. Today I don't have any disclosures. Uh, I'm not an intensivist, of course, uh, but I don't have any other disclosures. Jenny? My name is Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist and adult nephrologist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin, and I have no conflicts of interest. Jenny, have you ever ordered any crystalloid fluids on a patient? Oh, never. <laughs> Not even during my intramedicine presentation. <laughs> albumin for everyone. We have yeah, albumin for everyone. Oh, boy. I'm going to get a sheet mail. <laughs> it's going to be a rough ride. <laughs> It's like a rite of passage, so that's that's funny. We have two special guests tonight. First, we have Priya. Priya, introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Priya Yenaberry. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Indiana University, and my Twitter name is Prerenal AKI. Oh, that's good. That's how do you spell Prerenal there? Uh, P R I Renal AKI. I like it. That's that's good. That's good. That's that. I like that. It's like one of my greatest accomplishments. <laughs> right? If you can if you can stick the landing on a good on a good good Twitter handle, that's that's enough. And we also have Pedro. Pedro, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is uh, Pedro Teixeira. I am a nephrologist and medical attentivist at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. My disclosure, I have two disclosures. Number one, uh, I am an intensivist as well as a nephrologist, so my perspective on this topic might be a little bit different, but hopefully that's helpful for the podcast today. And number two, as I've shared with the group already before we started recording, I'm the father of a two-month-old who just had his two-month birthday today. And so I'm a little bit probably less well-rested than the average uh, podcast guest. That said, I absolutely you know, think this trial is super cool. I'm excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of the pod. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Pedro, how does, how does one become a nephrologist intensivist? What, how, what, what's the road to that? Oh, uh, good question. Um, there's a few ways uh, to do it. Um, there's an increasing number of three-year nephrology critical care tracks available uh, across the country, and UNM is sort of like that as well. We have a three-year track that's uh, mostly a guaranteed three-year contract. Um, and then, yeah, there's a handful of them, probably, I don't know, a quarter of the programs across the country may have something of the sort available to people who are interested in nephrology and interested in doing nephrology afterwards. Wait, you can also but do you them. Think a wait, you think a quarter of the nephrology Maybe fellowships not. Maybe not. percent I don't know. Um, it's an increasing number. It's an increasing number. I mean, I think it's a way that we're trying, myself and others, to attract people into nephrology. 
is the fact that you can use it as a springboard to critical care. And I obviously like feel strongly it's a pretty good combination. Um, as you might imagine, I'm, I am biased, but um, you know, I think you bring a lot to the table as a medical intensivist or even in other settings, a lot of nephrologists also staff surgical or even cardiothoracic intensive care units. And so it's becoming more common. You can, of course, do them separately. You know, after any any um, internal medicine fellowship of any kind, you can do, you know, it's uncommon, but you can do rheumatology and do a year of critical care. You can do one year of critical care after any uh, fellowship uh, in internal medicine, basically. So that okay. is another if option. There, if anybody is listening to this that is a critical care rheumatologist, <laughs> I want to hear from you because that's awesome, okay? <laughs> I, I trained with one at, at Washington <laughs> University who is an interesting guy, who put it that way. So it, it takes a unique personality to make that uh, uh, work. But, <laughs> but critical care nephrology is becoming less uncommon for sure. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's more than half of the fellows who train at UNM, for example, because that's you know, been a successful way for us to attract to fellows. Attract fellows. But it's becoming okay. more common. It's certainly becoming more what, common. So, what of course, probably an overstatement. What does the career look like after you finish this fellowship? Good question. Depends on where you end up, uh, for sure. And, you know, there are a lot of people. Like, the knock can be that, you know, many people end up doing one or the other or not. Yeah. Uh, and not both. But, uh, you know, you can do both, uh, for sure. Um, a lot of people in private practice have found it's a way to work as an alternative to say a typical practice where um, you would have a general inpatient nephrology consult work, uh, supplementing clinic and dialysis. They can do inpatient nephrology and critical care. You know, there are, of course, these increasing number of kind of nephrology hospitalist type, you know, hybrid positions as well. So that would be sort of uh, attached to that. Some people use it to do critical care and that's, you know, okay, that's what you want to do. Um, some people use it as additional training to have going into nephrology and having, you know, an academic expertise, for example. So it's all over the place. In academics, um, you know, it works. It's um, uh, if you're a rock star researcher like Kathleen Liu, who's like, you know, a pioneer of the sorts in the field, um, then you can, you know, run the medical ICU at, you know, UCSF and also um, work both as an inpatient uh, a nephrology and an intensivist. And myself, you know, um, here at UNM, it's a little bit smaller center, a little bit probably more flexible in some of the roles you could do. I can be a, you know, legitimate and it's, it's legitimate. It's an intense medical ICU experience here for sure. Um, you know, be a medical ICU attending as well as a nephrology attending and kind of create my own path. But, you know, there's a lot of different kind of ways to do it. Um, and it's becoming less uncommon for sure. Very interesting. Very interesting. And Priya, you have an interesting road to your transplant nephrology. Why don't you talk about your background for a second? I originally did MedPeds residency at Penn State in Hershey, PA, and then I followed that up with- Why would you do that? Why, why <laughs> would you possibly do MedPeds? Oh my. So I think for me, when I went through all of medical school, I essentially loved everything. <laughs> there were certain things that I just did not like. Uh, I did not care for OB-GYN. I did not care for surgery. Um, you know, as a little medical student, I just started crossing off all of the little residencies, and I was essentially in between medicine, peds, and family practice. But of course, family practice has a little bit more procedures, um, of course, a little bit of OB-GYN as well. And at the time, I really was in love with the idea of caring or at least primary care for the chronically ill, peds patients that are trach vented, essentially they age out of the pediatric realm um, and then get handed off to medicine. So when I first started, I was like, you know, I'm going to be that doctor. I'm going to be that doctor that just kind of keeps them and helps them. 
um, throughout their whole journey, if you will. But then I got to medicine, <laughs> medicine floors, and um, I just fell in love with fluids, fluids and salt. I thought that was great. I love diuresing people or giving them fluids. Um, so I just ended up taking a few extra nephrology rotations or electives uh, during my like second and third year, both in peds and adult. But then eventually I just uh, decided to do adult and possibly just try to see the aging kids, essentially the ones that come in that are young adolescents or young adults. I can still kind of get a little bit of, of peds there. And then eventually I fell in love with transplant. So it's just been a long road really just like finding things that I really like and finding patients that I want to build a relationship with. So transplant nephrology seemed like like the best thing for me after general nephrology. Outstanding. Very good. Very good. Okay. So we are here and this is a monumental freely filtered. This is our 50th episode. And Ooh, so this 50. is kind of, it's kind of yeah, 50 episodes. We started this Wait, back so in the Joel, spring. What was that? Are you going to give us all gold jewelry for number 50? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's in the mail. Just, I can't believe you haven't done it yet. Yeah, yeah, very fancy, incredibly expensive uh, microphones. It's all gold yeah. microphones and headphones. That's a, that's what we got you. Uh, yeah, in fact, if you guys oh, are nice. watching if, if, if you guys are watching on the video version of this podcast, which doesn't exist, you'd see that we were all wearing our gold microphones right? and headphones. <laughs> I'm wearing yellow um, for for the gold. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so twenty, yeah, twenty spring of 2019, we started this and the, uh, this journey, and it's it's been a lot of fun. Swapnil, do you have anything to say about 50 episodes? It's, it's been a great journey. Uh, two things. One is that I did not expect us to last this long, uh, and it's it's incredible that the team has you know kept going. You know, we have we have changed members and uh, we have grown, uh, and I hope we'll keep growing. Uh, and the second thing is, as as I hope listeners understand, is that we are. Uh, this is just such a fun conversation. You know, it's like we come here once every two weeks and we just chat with our friends about, you know, very nerdy topics. Uh, we have as much, we have a lot of fun on this uh, evening and uh, I hope we Absolutely. keep doing I'm this I'm actually for a long, surprised long it took time. so long. I, really, I expected us to be more consistent and get through, get to 50 episodes quicker than it did, but uh, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, Jenny, any thoughts on 50 episodes? Yeah, 50 episodes. How many hours of recording does that amount to give it? Right. That's a ton of recording. That's a ton of recording. Yeah. No, but it's been great. And, it, you know, it's, I obviously feel honored to be one of the OG filtrates, but I think that the podcast <laughs> has really evolved a lot. And it's been fun having a lot of different experts come in and different guests, a lot of witty repartee jolly good time for all so it's it's been a great experience and what's really been touching is actually interacting with trainees who you know, actually use it as a point to discuss you know even in fellowship interviews and everything so it's really great to see that we are having a reach out there and that students and residents are being inspired by it and in addition to that people in the community who may not have access to the same academic seminars and discussions that we do in academic centers are actually enjoying this a lot as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's been really great is we get a lot of uh, reviews on iTunes, which is, which is just a hoot to read. And I think, and so please rate and review us if you like it. If you don't like what we do, rate and review us. We just want to, we want to read your feedback. We want to hear what you have to say about this. Jenny, do you got a, do you have a review of, uh, from iTunes for us? I do. Well, 
I have two. One that was really touching, uh, one that said, simply the best. As a full-time community nephrologist and mom to two active boys, I've always felt the lack of a place to go to get up-to-date information on all things kidney. I listen to Freely Filtered every morning now while I walk. <laughs> That'd be an interesting walk. This has been life-changing for me. Thank you, Smart Nephrons. Oh, that is awesome. Another funny one. You know, it's a great way to stay up to date. Hosts are delightful. And then I turned this on to put myself to sleep one night. <laughs> <laughs> wow, very honest. Very honest. But they managed to keep me awake and wanting more, so I had to switch to a lesser podcast. <laughs> We'll oh, definitely excellent. be a part, excellent. regular part of my rotation. Thank you. We, we so. should make some suggestions on some lesser podcasts for them to listen to. No, no, we won't do that. We won't do that. We're not going to take Ooh. some shots at them. <laughs> okay, tonight, tonight we are talking about the classic trial. And so uh, if you've been paying attention to, to fluids, you know, there was a time in the early 2000s when Manny Rivers came out with its early goal-directed therapy for the treatment of sepsis. And it was revolutionary at the time because it was a profoundly positive trial in this field, which had been just suffering from a lot of, uh, a lot of um, futility and a lot of, and, and to have Manny Rivers come out and show this very pro profoundly positive trial that really centered on let's get people's perfusion restored very rapidly and he had some interesting ideas of how he was going to measure perfusion ideas that really haven't lasted and haven't served the test of time. But it really kind of solidified this idea of we're going to give them pretty aggressive fluid resuscitation early. And it wasn't clear from that trial when you should turn it off. And people started to ask that question, do we need so much fluid later? And clearly, since then, I'm not sure clearly, but let, let us say they, the momentum was less fluids is better. And you'd see kind of this trial after trial showing less fluids are better. But the quality of the evidence that supported that, it was a lot of retrospective analysis, uh, small prospective trials. And this classic trial was kind of one of the, can we say, the largest attempt to kind of really define this. Again, now it's important what they're looking at. We're not looking at initial resuscitation. We're not looking, all these people get initial resuscitation. The momentum in the field was towards less fluids. And this is the largest, I think, the largest trial that has really looked at that question in a prospective randomized manner. And I think it's a pretty interesting, I think it's a well done trial. I don't think they, I don't think they ended up getting, they ended up not testing what they wanted to test. And I'll, but I want to, I want to get Pedro's perspective on this. What, what, how, how would you, how would you frame up the background of where we are before, before this trial gets published? I mean, I think you summarize it nicely, Joel. The fact that we have this mega, you know, RCT, multi-center trial looking at fluid restriction is, you know, kind of the conceptual downstream of what was started with Manny Rivers. So Manny Rivers, you know, had literally an unbelievable result in retrospect, right? It was a single-center trial, then retrospect was not a believable result, but it set into motion this entire process. And the legacy of Manny Rivers is, you know, basically taken about um, 20 years to kind of unravel. And I think this is kind of one of the kind of culminating steps in that. Now, it's not completely discarding it. The, the protocolized approach to sepsis lives on and is still, you know, an important contribution. But, you know, we've turned things on your head. And I think you hit it on the nail when you said, how long are we supposed to be resuscitating people? Because this is a study that is um, carried out over the course of an entire ICU course. Manny Rivers was six hours in the ED. 
And I didn't realize that until like years later. And I'll preface this by saying I was a medical resident slightly before pre um, in, what was it, like 2008, uh, 9, 10. And I was memorizing, you know, this algorithm and applying it on hospital day seven in someone in the ICU, which is like in retrospect, insane. Like I would, you know, flip out if someone was doing that to my patient now as a medical ICU attending um, because it makes no sense. But that's what we did because we thought that that was like proper resuscitation. Um, you know, we've you know progressively debunked the the details certainly of the algorithm of Manny Rivers. You know, Arise, Promise, and Process. Um, you know, came out about what five, six, seven years ago now. Those three mega RCTs looking at similar algorithms based on similar parameters, like you know SCVO2, for example. All those completely negative. You know, you know early goal directed therapy, at least in that sense, you know, is dead. I think that's fair to say. But out of that came a bunch of these, both observational studies, those even predate some of those large RCTs, but a bunch of small pilots, like smallish by current standards um, pilots, including the classic pilot was a really, really intriguing study. But the amount of uh, observational data that ties poor outcomes in critically ill patients with AKI, you know, if you're thinking nephrology, with sepsis, with you name it, you know, the amount of observational data tying fluid overload with poor outcomes in critically ill patients is overwhelming. There's dozens of articles. And then these few small uh, pilot trials have, have come out. Most of them have been feasibility trials and been neutral, basically negative, but, but neutral, mostly just demonstrating uh, feasibility. But the classic pilot was super intriguing. It was, you know, large-ish for a pilot trial at about 150 patients, if I remember correctly. And it was like, you know, multi-center, but not huge. It was across, I don't know, 10, five centers in the same sort of region and Scandinavia, the same um, set of researchers. And it not only did it have no negative impact, algorithmic fluid restriction had no negative impact, but there was a positive signal for decreased acute kidney injury, which is super fascinating. And, 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 that, was, and that was the positive finding was the a decrease in AKI. Yeah. Technically, increase in AKI severity is how they crunch the numbers. So going from no AKI at the start of the trial to stage one or higher, or from one to two, two to three, for example, is how that was okay. actually measured. But yes. It, it, but the way they happen to measure it, the one finding that you would expect to be going the other direction was well, AKI. Well, back in Manny Rivers' day, absolutely, right? But like most AKI in the ICU certainly or persistent AKI in the ICU, and this is hard, this is hard because there are absolutely patients who are pre-renal, right? But a lot of AKI, most persistent AKI, I think it's fair to say, in the ICU is not pre-renal azotemia. And even septic AKI, you know, there's great experimental data showing that septic AKI is not a macro circulatory disorder, right? In other words, um, this goes to Ronaldo Bolomo's sheep is the classic experiment. So Ronaldo Bolomo is a mega researcher in all things critical care, but also, of course, critical care nephrology. He is like the lead author, for example, on the renal renal trial, looking at dose of CRT and uh, the New Zealand Australia group um, and a bunch of other things. But um, he did experimental sepsis in sheep and looked at renal blood flow in, in sheep who are getting septic AKI. And, you know, pretty early in the course of septic AKI, the creatinine's going up and the creatinine's like three or so in, in, these, in these septic sheep. And renal blood flow, like macroscopic renal blood flow is actually increased at that point. And so... It's now appreciated that a lot of septic AKI, for example, is microcirculatory disturbance. Like there's blood is not going to the glomerulus, it's going around, it's way more complicated. There's complex mitochondria diagrams. I'm, I'm going to easily get out of my depth quickly, but there's a whole bunch of cellular dysfunction and microcirculatory disturbance that isn't just, you know, you're not going to fix that with a CVP or a liter of LR. Okay. Okay. 
and and if i can ask the uh, you know i remember as a trainee we used to fill them up that's how i remember <laughs> this is again you know 15 years ago uh, uh that was sort of the you know if someone's blood pressure is low fill them up uh, before you start the pressers but the again probably with the trials that you mentioned uh, maybe 5 uh, years ago or so it's been pressers early uh, and don't fill them up uh, and i remember like even smart uh, which was on the um, the smart trial from Vanderbilt, which was uh, balanced versus saline, they gave, uh, you know, like 2.5 liters over seven days, which is like so dry, you know, just the cumulative fluid administration. But I guess that's, so my question is, is this standard that everyone has moved towards, even before classic, have you moved towards restrictive fluid uh, in most you, ICUs? You know, I think it is. And I think we'll talk about it, but I think it's part of the problem with this trial. Like this trial was supposed to be run over two yeah, years. COVID happened. Sure. It ended up uh, taking longer, took an extra year. And in addition, practices started changing. You know, the whole, I think the, the emerging concept is that fluid congestion is bad for all organs. Again, based mostly on observational data, right? Can't argue whether fluid overload is a marker of badness, right? The question is, is it a mediator badness? And it still may be despite this negative trial. I think one way of conceptualizing that is this idea of renal perfusion pressure, right? To some degree, high CVP, we don't think about, at least I, you know, I wasn't taught to think about it you know, before, High CVP is the downstream pressure of renal perfusion pressure. Renal perfusion pressure is MAP minus CVP. If CVP is, you know, really, really high, you may actually impair renal perfusion pressure or cause, you know, other ways of thinking about it, nephrosarca or, or you know, you name it, um, uh, different ways of thinking that congested kidneys or congested organs in general um, may be bad. We've all learned, you know, dry lungs are happy lungs, and that remains true. And that's actually based on, you know, decent RCT data to some degree, the fluid and catheter treatment trial. Uh, which is now 15 years old, but shows that even in ARDS, which by definition is not mostly volume, right? It's leaky rather than overpressurized alveolar capillaries in ARDS. Still then, it's helpful to keep those patients dry. It yeah, may but, be but, that. Uh, but, but I mean, the fact, I mean, the other thing we're always taught is, hey, if it doesn't meet its primary outcome, it's just exploratory. In fact, it didn't meet its primary outcome, right? There was no difference in survival in that trial. It was all just duration of... Uh, but ICU and, and ventilator vent, vent runs, wasn't it? That was not the yeah. reduction. That, that's, I, fair. I, I did, that's fair. That's fair. Well, I'd say FAC has become part of uh, you know, you know, critical care. Yeah. No, that's um, right. That, that regardless that's of sure. how we're supposed to be taught, the, the community accepted this, the lesson of that, right? Yeah. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I think most of the secondary outcomes kind of um, favored each other and kind of went in the same direction. And so there's a lot of kind of secondary outcomes. So any one of them you can pick apart. But decreased duration of mechanical ventilation, that's you know, a patient-centered outcome. Decreased time in ICU, that's a patient-centered outcome. Trend towards decreased need for dialysis. Um, if you, this is Kathleen Liu, speaking of Kathleen Liu, if you actually control the patient's creatinine for fluid balance, in fact, and adjust for that fact that you know, if you're you know, net positive, it'll tend to dilute out your um, serum creatinine and, and vice versa. There's less AKI as well. So it's you know, a pretty, in my mind, it's like my favorite trial maybe, you know, so, so uh, you're touching on a sensitive topic, you know, I'm a critical care nephrologist, Priest talking about enjoying giving and removing fluids. My day job, most of the time, especially if I'm wearing a nephrology hat, is removing fluids in the ICU, you know, that's my, my jam is, you know, the, the flip side of this, we're looking at like restricting fluids, which is along the right track. I like that idea. But um, nonetheless, your point is well taken. It was technically a negative trial. It's hard. It is hard to get positive trials in critical care. So secondary outcomes are taken sometimes too seriously, um, I think it's fair to say, but I don't know that we've, you know, 
debunked fact, if that's, if that's fair to say, right? You know, we certainly have debunked a lot of trials in critical care with other either larger multi-center trials or just, you know, better executed subsequent trials, confirmatory trials. In fact, it still sort of stands as part of kind of, a, a, you know, critical care kind of, you know, foundation of, of management of patients with ARDS, certainly. Okay, Swap, why don't, we, why don't we get methods here? So this was a, a, a multi-center, stratified, parallel, open-label, randomized clinical trial, and I will come to each of those words in a minute. Good. Uh, in terms of the countries, they had most of Scandinavia except Finland. I don't know why they didn't have Finland. It's such a cool country with a cool prime minister. <laughs> uh, they had UK, they had Belgium. She is cool. I, don't, I mean, she's young, she parties. Uh, I think she's fantastic. Uh, I tried to get uh, her to it, join this podcast. I couldn't believe she yeah. wouldn't join us. <laughs> I they also it's had the 50th anniversary. <laughs> yes, they're the Scandinavian country of Italy as well, which I found interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. they had a few. They had a few other <laughs> other countries. Uh, so they had Italy, Switzerland, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, UK, and Belgium. Uh, and there were there was one difference, and Italy will come to later. So uh, a, a small uh, issue is that they had. What is what I think is pretty cool, uh, and we have argued about this on other podcasts before, is they had deferred consent, yeah. which I think is uh, wherever it was possible. And in the ICU setting, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because if you have, um, uh, you know, a sick patient, uh, it's hard to get consent from the loved one or, or a surrogate. So uh, deferred consent doesn't mean that you don't consent them. It's that, you know, the treating intensivist says it's legit, so enroll them. And, and once they are able to get consent, they either get the consent and include the patient or they refuse, then they, we decide whether they use the information or not, depending on the patient's uh, permission. That's a fabulous model. If you can do that, we do it in Canada several times. Uh, and I think Europe is much more free about those things. Uh, but anyway, going on to the trial. So... Uh, the population was uh, people who are more than 18 years of age with septic shock. So septic shock was defined on a bunch of criteria. So either they had to have they had they had to have all of these criteria. So suspected or confirmed infection, plasma lactate of more than two millimoles per liter, which is 18 milligrams per deciliter for the Americans, uh, at least two uh, milli- uh, 18, 18 milligrams no, no, no. per we're, deciliter. We're using milliequivalents in, in America also. Oh, you yeah, do. It, it depends yeah, by lactate, hospital. Yeah. There are some hospitals that use milligrams per deciliter, and you'll get confused and think a patient's dying when they actually have a normal lactate. If you're not aware <laughs> of the, this happened to me, you know, you know, early in my career, the patient's lactate is, you know, twenty. I'm like, oh my god, and it's like, you know, near normal. Milligrams, so, uh, but it's milligrams per deciliter. So we we have, you know, like everything in the United States, you know, no one is, you know, on the same page. So. <laughs> Uh, so, so they had to have an elevated lactate. Uh, they needed to have to be on an ongoing infusion of a vasopressor or inotropic agent. And they had to have at least one liter of IV fluids in the 24 hours before screening. And just to chime in super quick, that's the sepsis three definition of septic shock. That's what they went with. So, okay, perfect. So, so, perfect. In, so, that, so in order for you to have sepsis now, you need to be on a presser? Is that right? Th- sorry, septic shock. Septic, septic shock. shock. In order the for sepsis three septic shock. definition of septic shock. The yeah, sepsis okay. three definition of sepsis is an increase in SOFA score by two in the setting of sepsis, something like that. I may be misquoting it because I hate it because it's like cumbersome. <laughs> uh, I don't like QSOFA. I'm like, I was trained with SIRS and I get why SIRS is, you know, has its limitations because it's an overly broad kind of, um, uh, you know, wastebasket of people who a lot of, many of which don't have infection, but the whole increase in SOFA score, like SOFA itself is kind of a little bit antiquated in some ways. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of that definition of sepsis, but the septic shock definition by sep- uh, the sepsis three criteria, pretty reasonable. You have to be on pressors, uh, you know, at least a small elevation in your lactate. Um, all that's, I think, pretty reasonable. Okay. Perfect. And, and uh, the, they were included if the onset of shock had been within 12 hours of screening. So 
uh, up to 12 hours is okay. And, and this is important because these are patients who already got a liter of IV fluid and these are not the, you know, within six hours patients that Pedro was talking about with many reverse. So they, it's, this is not the initial resuscitation. This is kind of the maintenance after the initial resuscitation is done. Uh, they had a bunch of exclusions, uh, which were actually not that bad. Uh, you know, if you're pregnant, you are excluded. If you are actively bleeding, you know, so you would need IV fluids, you are excluded. If you had burns, uh, li life-threatening, you know, acute burn injury with more than 10% of body surface area, you are excluded. So pretty pragmatic from that point of view. Uh, so that's the population. Uh, this was uh, randomized. It was stratified by two criteria, the trial site or whether the patient had or did not have metastatic or hematologic cancer. One-to-one uh, -one randomization. This was open label. So, you know, you can't blind someone to how much IV fluids you're getting. So that's pretty reasonable. But the outcome was masked. So the people who were analyzing it and the DSMB were masked to uh, what uh, the assignment was. Uh, the interventions are really important to understand because uh, how do you decide who gets less IV fluids and who gets more IV fluids? So restricted IV fluids, uh, so they were not to be given IV fluids until a certain conditions were fulfilled. So under four conditions, they could get IV fluids. So A, uh, they had severe hypoperfusion, which is defined as when the lactate was at least four millimoles per liter or 36 milligrams per deciliter. If the MAP fell to less than 50, despite a vasopressor, uh, if they had uh, mottling beyond the edge of the kneecap, there is a mottling score, uh, which I didn't know about, uh, with, a, with a mottling score more than two. Uh, or if they have oliguria with a urinary output of less than 0.1 ml per kg per body weight. So, so and if any of these criteria were fulfilled, they could get a bolus of 250 to 500 ml. Uh, apart from this, they could get IV fluids to replenish, uh, you know, if they have any documented fluid losses uh, or to correct a dehydration uh, or electrolyte deficiency. And lastly, uh, even if none of these conditions were fulfilled, they could get IV fluids up to, you know, uh, to keep the daily intake up to one liter. So, you know, they could get IV fluids to up to one liter a day, or if they had any of these other conditions, they could get boluses. So that's the restricted. In the, uh, in the control group, which is supposed to be standard of care, there was no set upper limit uh, for, for fluids. And uh, if you see what criteria they had, you know, IV fluids could be kept giving on as long as the patient had improvement in hemodynamic factors. Uh, the patients could be given IV fluids to replace expected or observed losses. Or if the, if the ICU had some protocol saying, hey, this much is the IV fluid we are going to give, they are free to give that much IV fluids. You know, and I think that's what we do. So it fits our control group saying, you know, hey, we have protocols and often it depends on whoever is in, uh, who is attending, who wants to give IV fluid or what happens to the map. When you guys are assessing patients, I'm presuming you don't use a modeling score. Pedro? I haven't been. I haven't been. So yeah, I looked into this as well because I found this very interesting. I think it's cool. I don't know. And, and so let me back up a little bit. Um, Swap's doing a good job of, um, you know, systematically explaining things, but and I'm going to explain how I understand it. And I know a little bit more about this study from listening to, sorry, Joel, another podcast called Critical Care Reviews, which, which is um, obviously ICU-centric, but it is um, run out of the, the UK, out of um, actually Northern Ireland, Belfast. And the actual you know, first and last author, uh, Tina Mayhoff, I might be saying her name wrong, and Anders Perner, who runs that um, Scandinavian Critical Trials Group presented it. And so my understanding is that these four so-called classic criteria are conditions at which you may consider giving fluids. They weren't required to give in fluids. And as that, I think these are reasonable considerations for giving fluids. So you can take any one of these and poke a hole as to whether you should reflexively give fluids. Nowadays, I think the answer to 
all of them would be no. Um, you shouldn't always give everyone fluids for any of these four conditions. So for example, lactate, there's this um, nice kind of um, countercurrent, you know, series of editorials, some of it in FOMED, but some of it also kind of published in traditional literature, arguing that we should avoid the lactobolo reflex, like everyone with a high lactate should get a should get a bolus. I definitely do not think that's appropriate. I do think everyone with a high lactate, you can consider whether they're under-resuscitated and consider giving them fluids. That modeling score probably falls along a similar uh, idea. Those are patients who probably are exhibiting signs of circulatory dysfunction. Interestingly, so I tracked down the reference for that. It's a, you know, a 10-year-old paper published in, I want to say, either quick care med or intensive care med, one of the uh, ICU journals. And it's a small study, 60 uh, or so patients, and they have these nice pictures showing basically, I didn't understand it until I saw the picture, but someone who's minimally modeled will have a little patch of modeling right over their kneecap. And as they get kind of more sick, basically, the area increases, the circle, the uh, circle around the kneecap, you know, uh, increases until your whole leg is basically modeled. And indeed, if I see someone with modeled legs from the doorway, I'm like, this person's sick. But interestingly, that original reference, you know, highlights the fact that this is a sign of microcirculatory dysfunction. So not necessarily something you might easily fix with a bolus of LR. Lactate, increasingly recognized as a, certainly a clear severity of illness marker, like there's no question about that in all sorts of critically ill patients, but also not just, you know, pure macrovascular dysfunction either. It's a microcirculatory dysfunction, you know, impaired utilization of oxygen and sepsis, et cetera. Oliguria, I will point out, they had a time limit, if I remember correctly, like you could only give boluses for oliguria that's two hours or less old, which I think is a good safety mechanism, because obviously if someone's been oliguric for a week, Good luck, you know, getting them to pee with another 500 of LR. But uh, all that said, I think these are reasonable triggers to consider fluid. And I think that's what they did. They didn't actually, I, you know, my understanding, tell us kind of what they used to dictate when to give fluids or how to assess the response. They do make this kind of statement in the paper in both actually intervention and the control arm that they tried to follow, you know, in 2016, which was the contemporary guidelines at the time, the 2016 surviving sepsis guidelines, which, you know, made some general statements about, you know, dynamic measures of fluid responsiveness being superior to old school static ones like um, CVP, for example. And so I suspect, and again, these are like, for the most part, centers that are probably academic centers or some, I think, community centers, but like people practicing near the cutting edge of critical care. So they probably were doing these sites of assessments. So they would have a lactate of four point something and then be like, you know what, this person's pulse pressure is wide. Maybe we'll try to give them some fluid and then, you know, use something to measure, you know, incremental change in stroke volume, which is what we should be doing in 2022, like assessing the response to every half a liter or whatever of fluid we give, but they don't spill it out entirely. So I think they end up setting up setting us up to like try to generate a difference in how much fluid is given, but they don't really hold the individual trialists at every single center. They don't hold their hands and kind of force them to follow an algorithm like Manny Rivers. This is a little more kind of between that and a pragmatic trial. Right, right. Yes, it does seem to be a little bit towards the pragmatism. That's exactly what I was going to say. Is it somewhat pragmatic is uh, they have, they are giving general principles without being extremely prescriptive about exactly how much fluid you should give. Uh, and and point taken, right? It was the, these criteria were not that you must give fluids. It's like, hey, if you want to give fluids, you have to have one of these criteria. Think about giving fluids if if those criteria are present. The the fluids itself. Uh, so they kept going on until the patient was in the ICU or ninety days. So that's the other thing, right? These are really maintenance IV fluid. This was a maintenance IV fluid trial, not not a resuscitation trial. 
in terms of outcome, uh, the primary outcome was Joel's favorite one of death within 90 days after randomization. No arguing with, uh, with There's death. no arguing with it. It is a clear patient-oriented outcome. They do, did have a bunch of secondary outcomes, you know, uh, serious adverse events in the ICU f- of interest to us. Uh, they did have a new episode of a severe AKI, which is, you know, KDIGO stage three was, was one of the secondary outcomes. They looked at, you know, adverse reactions to IV fluids, uh, days alive without life support, a number of days in the hospital, out of the hospital at day 90 and so on. Uh, of interest to us uh, with the sample size. So they expected, and again, this tells you, right, this is a group of very sick people. They expected a baseline 90-day mortality of 45%. So, so roughly just under half the patients are expected to die. And we will see in the results how, how close they were to their guesstimate. And for their sample size analysis, they expected that the, there would be a 15% relative risk reduction uh, or a 7% percentage point for absolute. So uh, which would be you know going from 45 to 38, I guess, in terms of superiority. And, and the analysis itself is fairly straightforward. It was intention to treat. They had uh, logistic regression. Uh, it was stratified, uh, adjusted for the two stratification variables. In addition to that, they have sensitivity analysis. And remind uh, on, me, those on a stratification bunch. variables were location and? And uh, presence or absence of cancer, hematologic or metastatic can- cancer. Why, why, why that? Why cancer? Why do they, what, what, what's going on there? I think it might have to do, so obviously that could potentially influence overall kind of prognosis, but it does seem a little bit arbitrary because other, you know, in, in New Mexico would be end-stage liver disease would be the equivalent. I think there was a lot of cancer centers, is my best guess, listening to this other podcast again. They okay. had, they were describing some patients could show up kind of septic, you know, maybe after bone marrow transplant and just basically get admitted from home. Sounds like, you know, Scandinavian, like ideal, like healthcare setting where you can just be like, knock, knock, I need some critical care now and just walk in and get what you need. But nonetheless, I think that's probably why they did it is to sort of try to balance that between the groups because they have the, like, I think they were somewhat enriched with that comorbidity. That's a guess, to be honest. One, one thing I'll also say, Swap, I don't think they would agree that this is maintenance fluids that they were separating. So it's, we'll get into it in the results because you will see that a lot of other fluid is going on. And actually, this is something I didn't like as much and confused me slightly when I read this paper for the first time compared to the classic pilot. In the classic pilot, they use the term resuscitation fluid. And I think that's what this is. They are looking at resuscitation fluid um, rather than all of these background fluids, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to the results, because there's a lot of background fluid in critically ill patients. So the bulk of that, if you look at the table, what is this? Table two. Um, table two, the bulk of the fluids given after 90 days uh, were actually given after five days as resuscitation fluid. So I think it is, it's not you know, early phase, you can split mm-hmm. up critical illness or sepsis in particular into various phases. Like it's not the resuscitation ED phase. It's mm-hmm. more in like the second or third phase or probably the second phase, like what some people call optimization, where you're giving mm-hmm. fluids, but you're ideally targeting it. That's how I teach it to fellows. Like you give fluids to a specific endpoint. And then if the endpoint's not being fulfilled, you stop. I think that's the part of the resuscitation that they were targeting, not the first, but probably the second, and right. not so much the later stabilization and de-resuscitation phase. Perfect. That, that does make uh, sense, not just the maintenance, uh, but definitely not the early resuscitation. The last part of the outcomes I'll mention is that uh, they do do some sensitivity analysis accounting for the simplified mortality score in ICU, uh, the focus of infection, and the use of steroids. Uh, they do have uh, some pre-specified subgroups that we'll talk about in the results, which are going to be pretty interesting. Uh, basically, the use of respiratory support, presence or absence of AKI, the lactate of four, 
uh, body weight of 76 and with how much fluids the patient had had before. So whether they got resuscitated with a 30 ml per kg body weight in the 24 hours before randomization or not. And lastly, in terms of the analysis, they did have a couple of interim analysis. So they looked at uh, when 10% and 30% were enrolled, they looked at adherence, which is, you know, legitimate. And when 50% of patients were enrolled, they looked at safety, but they didn't look at efficacy in any of the interim analysis. So, you know, they didn't have to uh, account for that. So very clean trial, uh, apart from the open label, which is unavoidable. I think, you know, it is, uh, as far as the stats and methods are concerned, it's, it's pretty straightforward and, uh, and clean. Okay, Pedro, give it a grade, A, B, C, or D for methods. You know, probably methodology-wise, not going to be able to, to, to judge it better than SWAT, but this is, you know, stellar. Like, I think in terms of the quality of the trial, top, top-notch. Priya will get to some of the results in terms of, like, the degree of enrollment and screening and follow-up, flawless execution, wonderful trial. The trial was done perfectly to test what they ended up testing, I think it's fair to say. So the, the methodology, I think, is solid. Uh, we'll get to the results and yeah, uh, talk okay. about it. But the methodology is solid. I guess here's my concern is that I go to I go to the critical care review series at ASN and they tell me how to judge volume and it doesn't sound anything like this, right? They're telling me I'm supposed to be doing dynamic testing. I'm supposed to be doing POCUS ultrasound. And <laughs> where is all of that there, right? 2019 is not that long ago, right? The, all those tools are available to these guys why are they, why do they choose not to why are we looking at uh, 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 inferior vena cava and collapsibility yeah so I, I got asked to, to do that session at ASN this year and I agree like none of these sessions none of these none of these four things are going to be in my talk and fluid responsiveness right lactate is limited yes. I hadn't heard of the the you know, sick looking knees or whatever you know uh, uh, um, the knees look I'll very look, bad very bad knees I just tell like George Costanza when you start talking like that the knees were terrible I couldn't go out with her um, yeah I'm, I'm not usually looking for um, you know date night on, in the in the the medical ICU but fair enough fair enough um, and right so but like again I think that part like using preferentially dynamic rather than static measures i think is sort of encompassed in both arms because that should be standard of care that was standard according to surviving sepsis campaign before this trial started i think that's sort of in the background and probably being done but it's not what it was being tested they're just basically trying to build you know two separate approaches to triggers for consideration of fluid i think is what they're doing and achieve some separation I don't want to jump to the results, but like, okay, they, they, yeah, they achieve what they um, tried to do based on the pilot. You know, they were able to achieve a similar degree of separation as the pilot, which of course was sort of borderline, questionably positive study. So, but anyhow, we're, we're going to get into the results. We should get to the results. Priya, hit us with some results. All right. So let's go ahead and start with the enrollment period. Um, the study was pretty much spot on at three years from 2018 to 2021. 31 ICUs um, over across eight separate countries. Originally, about 2,223 patients were eligible, um, and with the exclusion criteria that SWAP mentioned, uh, 669 were excluded with a final count of 1,554 that went randomization. So 770 went into that restricted fluid group, and then another 784 went to the standard fluid group itself. Fairly similar in terms of size. If we go ahead and move on to table one, um, you can go ahead and see those baseline characteristics of the patients itself. Between the two groups, they were pretty well balanced. The median age was about 70 years old. 
and each of the group had about 60% male patients. And you'll see in this table, most if not all actually of the numbers are going to be median because this was a skewed uh, distribution. Usually when we have like normal distribution, you have like a mean and standard deviation. But when you're looking through this table, you're going to see median and interquartile range. And that essentially means your middle 50% of your subjects, if you will. So if you look at the two groups, IV fluid volume resuscitation prior to being placed in that assigned group was about three liters on both sides. Most of the infections were GI-related and then followed by palm or a lung source. But that being said, both of the groups, half of them had respiratory support, which we'll chat about in, in a little bit. Um, the so, ICU stays... So uh, if I could interrupt there about yeah. the GI, GI infection. So that seems a little bit odd. Uh, and this yeah. came up in the chat as well, right? Pneumonia is common. Uh, yeah. GI, yes, people have diverticulitis and all that, but 36%, 38% seems a bit high to me. Yeah. And it, and it was odd to the trialists themselves. So they were surprised by that. So overwhelmingly, pneumonia is the number one source for sepsis. And I, I, yeah. I, I think maybe, you know, they had a larger number of surgical patients. And so what's, and this is not like data that was presented, but this oh. is sort of um, per, Perner sort of, kind of speculating or, or off the cuff sort of saying like, and, and obviously it could be relevant is this is like all colitis with diarrhea with ongoing GI fluid loss that may potentially influence response to fluids or maybe more hypovolemic component to some of the shock. But it doesn't sound like it was all, you know, dysentery. It, it sounds like it was anastomotic leaks, surgical infections, but still like may potentially compromise generalizability of the study a little bit because it's a little bit unusual. It is unusual because they do a beautiful job in the supplementary appendix, uh, as Joel knows, that, you know, of, of <laughs> comparing their own study to a typical European, you know, critical care trial cohort. They did a really good job of sort of laying out like, this is what our centers should look like, and this is what our, our trial looked like. And that was a, a big difference that was brought up as well in the presentation of this trial at the critical cares review. The other thing I want to just quickly mention, like, Enrolling, you know, screening 2,000 patients and enrolling two-thirds of them in a critical care trial is just like blows my mind. It's just so it's impressive. Great. So, it's great. Yes. Overwhelmingly, the European approach, regulatory approach helps. You know, deferred consent is not commonly used in trials in the United States, probably underutilized. We are, speaking of the Vanderbilt, you know, clinical trials group, starting to do more pragmatic trials where, you know, the investigators thoughtfully build a trial with clear clinical equipoise where you don't even have to consent. I think that's brilliant. I think that's, you know, where we need to go. You know, our sort of national ethos about individuality is so strong that we you know have more barriers to this kind of research but i think one of the good things hopefully about the covid pandemic is ways to sort of you know thoughtfully respect patient autonomy but also facilitate enrollment into trials for especially critically ill patients is so hard to do i think we need to keep you know thinking of ways to do that better and this is like you know spectacular yeah definitely a good size of the two groups Moving on, so the length of stay at the ICU for median stay was five days, which we'll kind of chat about when we move on to our next table here. Table two, they go ahead and they look at the IV fluid breakdowns between the two groups, the restricted and the standard group, and they break this down into three different variable categories. And each of those volumes are essentially looked at after day one, day five, and then again, 90 days, which is towards the end of it and with our outcomes at the end. 
So the first variable is essentially just IV fluid volume itself. So this is going to be IV fluid, but not including any type of blood products or any IV fluids that are being used for medications or any type of nutrition. So for the median numbers for after five days, the restriction fluid group had 1.45 liters worth of fluid, excuse me, IV fluid. And then the standard group had a closer to about three liters. The second variable was essentially a collection of the total fluid volume itself. So this is essentially any dedicated volume intake. So that's going to be IV, PO, and it's also going to include blood products because blood products were not included in that first variable that we mentioned. And then the last part of that table, you're going to see the cumulative balance among the groups. And this is like our usual, you know, I's and O's, total intake versus total outtake. And those outtakes or that output, or we're going to look at, you know, urine output, we're going to look at volume removal for anyone that was on, you know, any type of renal replacement therapy, or any other fluid output that you can think of. Um, I know we mentioned, you know, SICU or surgical. So we're talking about drains, we're talking about blood loss, GI loss, all those things. And that might kind of couple with what we mentioned earlier, which was a, a large majority of GI related reasons for an ICU stay. So for that, the median after five days, the restricted fluids group had 1.6 liters in regards to their cumulative fluid balance. And then the standard group had about 2.4. So between the two groups, it's actually only about 750 if you think about the difference between the restricted group and the standard, which was I thought, you know, in my head, I was thinking that there would be a lot more. But obviously, when you look at all of the PO intake and enteral fluid and all the losses that we haven't been looking at. Really interesting that we only get to about 750 between the two, you know, essentially at the end of five days or so. But I mean, table, you know, all the columns, you look at it, like the differences are so small. They're so tiny, whichever way you slice and dice it, unless you look at, you know, 90 day cumulative fluid difference where, you know, it goes into the two liters, three liters. It's just so small. Yeah. The separation is it just is too so small. small. And it, you get the sense when you look at that cumulative balance that they must have had increased urine output in the people on the on the uh, on the liberal fluid level because those the differences really start to narrow, right? Yeah, absolutely. Those differences absolutely. really narrow. You know, if you look at the total fluids, you start to see, oh, there's actually you're starting to get some separation there. Maybe a little bit, maybe not great. Yeah. So I guess but one the of the things less. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, when you kind of go through the paper, they talk about these things called protocol violations. So essentially what they mean by that is protocol violations were any type of IV fluid that was given that didn't meet that protocol criteria that SWAT mentioned earlier uh, when we were going through that methods. So mainly that medical team essentially did what they had to do or what they thought was appropriate at the time. And they gave fluid for mostly either improvement of circulation or to ensure that the patient had that adequate fluid intake, say if they weren't taking enough PO. So these protocol violations may be a reason for that cumulative balance that we see in the restricted group. About 21.5% of those cases were technically uh, protocol violations, while you only had 13% in the standard. So like 
protocol, like the word violation is just like such a strong word. But I think like the idea is that, you know, I wish there was a gentler way to say violation. But essentially what it's saying is the the team thought they needed IV fluid and they did what's best for the patient. And that kind of skews some of that, some of those like leftover numbers towards the end of that table. I feel like I'm going to the principal's office when I have a, a protocol violation on my patient in a, in, a, in a trial, even if it's like as reasonable as probably most of these were. So I agree they should come up with a gentler term. Yeah, for, like uh, a better word. So strong. Deviation. <laughs> but I think, I think oh, man, that sounds pretty bad, too. <laughs> That's pretty bad, too. Yeah. I think it's instructive because there was a pretty high protocol violation for the liberal group, right? The standard group. And remember, it's an anything goes. There's no, there's, you can't get into trouble. Forget, what you, what, I'm, I'm missing the hand signal. What are you trying to say? Uh, so I think. I think it was the restrictive group. Uh, if anyone no, else, no, there, had... there were significant well, protocol violations there, there, in the standard. There was group. A, there was both. There was both about twice as many in okay. the restrictive the, group, yep. and then they're basically basically but, totally different types of um, violations in the in the restrictive group. But I think it's group. still instructive, right? Because in the standard group, the violations yeah. that they had come from patients not hitting that one liter of fluid a day. Am I right? That's right. The, that, that's the only violation they could get. Which that's possible. Which gives you a sense of the mindset of the people that were enrolling patients. That they- and I think that's absolutely correct. Like I would violate the crap out of the standard group because I have tons <laughs> of patients that I don't want to have a liter a day. If they're severely hypoxic or volume overloaded, I, I, you know, and if they're depending what their tube feed volume is, it's usually more than uh, a liter a day. But if they're on two pressors, if they're not getting enteral nutrition, I'm not starting, you know, TPN immediately. I'm not hanging dextrose. I don't, I don't believe in maintenance fluids, you know, in the ICU. Like we all are going to go to bed tonight and, um, you know, live eight hours without an IV fluid infusion, right? Um, and then in, in critically ill patients, the fluid has a risk of harm. So I don't, I don't do maintenance fluids. So I agree, I would have probably violated the standard arm a lot. And then the violations were more common in the restrictive group, but they're just fluids were given for some reason or another that we haven't captured, at least not yet in the published data, but wasn't one of those four things. So they're, they're very different, but it, it is a lot. In terms of the impact, we do know, I don't know, Priya, if you're going to get to this, in a sensitivity analysis, they look at the impact on mortality and it didn't change the result. Um, although I don't think we have the a sensitivity analysis on this kind of intermediary variable of fluid balance, like if you if you excluded all that. I'm not sure if that's in the, the uh, supplementary appendix swap. Did you see it? I don't remember. I didn't see no, it either. Why aren't you asking me no. if it's in the supplementary? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> why would you just act swap? I, I, but but I, I but I guess but my, no, like, my were... what I wanted to say is that you have yeah. investigators that are in this trial that they've got they've got skin in the game. They believe that patients should get less fluid, and I think that is going to shade the the reason you don't get separation in these groups and you can see that the protocol violations that they're having tend to be we're not giving enough fluid to people in the liberal group and this results in this this lack of separation and of course you got to take care of patients first that that comes first before the protocol of course i get that but i that, that's all i was trying to get at okay uh, jenny I, I stepped on you what were oh, you saying yeah because i was wondering like you know in terms of like a you know, pre-existing heart failure, you know that was only like fifteen percent of the around fifteen to nineteen percent of each group. But was can you remind me? You know, were there reports of EF? Like I know in sepsis you can have some myocardial dysfunction. Like was any of that recorded? And was that kind of a concern at least for you know the standard group? 
for why they would want to be more restrictive if they had that data, for example, or they did a bedside echo and yeah. saw a depressed EF. Yeah, I don't think they no, I, I, I either. Don't, I don't think they even collected, but they certainly didn't report it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does go back to the whole focus and imaging uh, aspect. And if I can make a last point on this issue, is uh, wearing my hypertension hat. Uh, you know, a lot of controversy on, on, for example, the sprint trial was that what they did in the control group in sprint is that they stopped their blood pressure pills to get their blood pressure up to 140. Uh, and then, and if they if they had to be seen, and if the BP was still low, the BP BP medications had to be stopped. And despite that, you know, their separation was 121 versus 133. It was not 120 and 140, but still they achieved a 12 millimeter separation in sprint. And that is one of the biggest bones of contention for sprint is because people say that's not standard care. If someone's blood pressure is 129, I don't stop their blood pressure pills, but they had to do that to achieve the separation, right? So it's kind of a damned if you do and damned if you don't. And I think in sprint, what they did is at least you have an answer. 120 is better than 135. Here, you know, I'm not sure. I, I mean, we haven't come to the results yet, but the, the lack of separation is, is, is a big limitation. Yeah, and I think, but I think that's the important thing is that that sprint wasn't it wasn't one twenty versus standard of care, right? No. And this and and and, and so right. that's why the protocol was designed that way. This mm -hmm. is a restricted versus standard of care, and right. the standard of care that's a very subjective opinion, right? And yeah. I think this yeah, is the, the standard same, of care when they, is, when they wrote the grant. Is, was probably different than when the standard of care, when the well, trial actually was that, implemented. Uh, and that's actually all factually true. Like they presented, the, not in the stu uh, the study, but they you know, reported that the fluid balance, the sorry, the resuscitation fluids, that first line in table two, which they just call IV fluids NOS. The, the terminology is a little bit confusing. Intravenous fluid volume is the term that they use. That's what their the protocol was acting upon, which I think a better term is resuscitation fluid. In the interim analysis, the median that ended up being I think after five days, close to three liters, I think was closer to four, something like that. I forget the exact amount. But basically, over the course of the trial, the amount of fluid given, actually, I think it's over 90 days. I'm just remembering from this podcast. I think the 3.8 was like 4.3 or something after the interim analysis, implying that the amount of fluid given to the standard arm it was even lower than this current median over the last half of the trial. So down in the closer to three range. And so the, the standard care shifted towards more restrictive fluid practices over these three years. There's no question. I do think that parallels at least, you know, the academic critical care practice that I've been exposed to over a similar time frame. I mean, I basically did fellowship at the start of this trial. So I, I, I um, do think that happened and they actually have those data and I influenced things. And then there was COVID too. Like during COVID, I think we probably all got in the habit of giving more diuretics and less fluid based on fact, which Joel points out was technically a negative study, but still is sort of something that I consider a, fun, a foundation of my practice in the ICU for, for, for intubated patients. But uh, um, uh, yeah, so it did change. It did change over the course of the, the trial itself. Okay, Priya, keep going. Okay, so I think everyone's been waiting for the final outcomes. Man, I mean, everyone's just like, once we get to the outcome, so let's just go ahead and, and, and get to it. So uh, we'll go ahead and look at both figure two and table three. So essentially, uh, what we have at the end of 90 days, uh, we have 764 patients that were included into that primary analysis. Remember that it was 770 at the beginning, and there were about six that were excluded because of that consent issue, like obtaining the consent. 
and then three were lost in follow-up. And then on the standard arm, we originally had 784, and it's down to 781 for the primary analysis. And again, the three patients there was because of withdrawal of consent or, or follow-up. So at the end of the 90 days, they went ahead and uh, were looking at overall survival. So essentially the number of deaths at 90 days, 42.3% in the restricted fluid group versus 42.1% in the standard arm. So very much um, about the same, if you will. Go ahead and you adjust those. It's an adjusted absolute difference. That's that number that you see there. Uh, between the two groups, it was 0.1 percentage points per protocol analysis, getting rid of those patients that were essentially taken off that protocol that we talked about, you can see that there was no difference when it came down to those patients. So then moving on to the secondary analysis, uh, they have uh, quite a few there. The big one that we want to talk about is the serious adverse events. That's essentially defined as if there was an organ and there was any sign of ischemia, it essentially counted as a serious adverse event. And for those, you can see 29.4% of those adverse events in the restricted arm and 30.8% in the standard arm. So when those are adjusted, the difference between the two groups was 1.7%. I guess it's a little bit higher than what we saw before, but it's definitely very small in the, in the grand scheme of things. Moving on through the rest of the secondary outcomes, between uh, the two groups, there was no difference of outcomes when looking at the number of hospital days without life support or looking at the number of days that a patient was alive and out of the hospital. And if you look at uh, severe AKI, uh, it, it, it is not lower with more IV fluids. Uh, I mean, the, they are same, basically, but it's 23.1 in the restrictive uh, and the number at least is slightly higher, 24.5 with the standard fluids. Right. So like our discussion before, uh, like Pedro was pointing out, uh, giving more fluids doesn't mean there's less AKI. You know, mm -hmm. Maybe that urine output went up, as Joel pointed out, but AKI was no different. So I'm glad you brought up AKI. We'll go ahead and look at the subgroup analysis, which I thought was very which was a fun thing. Well, fun for me because I'm reading about it. But, you know, important thing for all of us, it, it essentially broken down these groups into three specific groups. The first one being any type of respiratory support, whether that be invasive or non-invasive ventilation that did not include any type of intermittent CPAP or high flow nasal cannula. So it was very much a def definition of true mechanical support. The second one was the severe AKI that Swap just mentioned. The third one was a plasma lactate level of greater than four, and that's millimoles per liter. And that's essentially just a marker of a severe metabolic failure. That was the point of that number. Body weight below or above 76 kilos. And then the amount of fluid given before randomization. And the cutoff for that was either more or less than 30 mLs per kilo. And a lot of times that's like uh, that number that we kind of have in our head when it comes to initial resuscitation. So we wanted to make sure that we look at how these patients essentially compared after that uh, 30 kilos, whether they already got enough fluid, if you will, or didn't get enough fluid. So if you go ahead and if you look at those subgroups there, the ones that I thought were pretty interesting was the first one, which was respiratory support. So you can see that the restricted arm did a little bit better when it came to comparing it to the fluid arm with a p-value of 0.03 for heterogeneity. I'm not sure if anyone has anything to comment in regards to that. But it was very striking if you go ahead and look at the actual visual, you can you can see you can see it there yeah. on paper. It's always nice. Exactly. And the point estimates are clearly almost, you know, they they overlap one, uh, but the point estimates are on, you know, exactly symmetrically on either sides with a sort of maybe there's a benefit with restrictive IV fluids on someone who's already on a ventilator. 
compared to which again makes a lot of bias. It's plausible. It's pretty plausible. Uh, with uh, you know, I know Pedro wants to speak, but the the p value of point oh three actually is pretty strong. It, it suggests but- that there is something going on. But again, these are hypotheses generating at the best, right? This yeah. is not what the trial was powered for. Correct. And they did set like a p-value for significance for the subgroup analysis at 0.01, which I think was probably just a Bonferroni, 0.05 divided yeah. by 5. They have five um, yeah. subgroups here. So technically, they, they consider that you know intriguing results not uh, statistically significant, but obviously, it's the most interesting of the group. The interesting thing, so the 30 mLs per kilo initial, that's pre-randomization. So again, to get into the trial, you had to get at least one liter. The median pre-randomization fluid volume given was three, which is actually depending on your size. And I suspect 76 kilos they picked here as the cutoff as the median of the weight as well. Didn't seem to make a difference in this situation. But none, nonetheless, that's sort of the 30 mLs per kilo is what we're supposed to give in the ED. That's like surviving sepsis ED. Some people think it's too much. Some people say we should do 20 to 30. I think 20 to 30 is pretty reasonable. Give a little wiggle room. But nonetheless, that's still kind of, um, you know, hasn't been debunked as part of our surviving sepsis campaigns. But a bunch of trials are looking at it, looking at early phase of resuscitation, which just technically is not. And yeah, absolutely, the res- respiratory support is... is um, you know, intriguing. It's intriguing. It's technically, uh, you know, only hypothesis generating. I think it's sort of already is something that we do in practice. Like if you have a patient who's doing poorly from a respiratory point of view, the, the lungs are a desert. We have some moderate quality randomized control trial evidence to suggest that's true based on fact that we've covered already. But yeah, by far the most uh, uh, striking of the uh, subgroup analyses. Let, let's flip that on its side. Why do you think that if you were not on a vent, you did worse with the restrictive, right? Great point that the I thought about bringing up. Just but as didn't, strong but in that left it for you, right? I guess. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely uh, right. They <laughs> mirror each other. They mirror each other. So, so not being an event is like an indication for fluids. Obviously, that's not. I don't believe that. So, but it's it's interesting. It, <laughs> I, I believe Swap maybe have an opinion of this. That does raise the possibility of, of this maybe being noise. I don't know. So yeah. it's interesting. It's interesting. It's it's hard and to then, know. And 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 just going back to that that the the thirty cc's per kilo fluid volume at resuscitation. You know, again, if they were given less volume, again, it looked like having a little bit more liberal approach to fluids seemed to do better. Do you Which think is that's incomplete resuscitation? Is that what you think that's a signal I mean, for? Presumably, if you look at like observational studies looking at this issue of, of relationship between resuscitation fluids kind of in the acute early period and subsequent, and you know, there's a few interesting trials. These are not like huge either, but more kind of, you know, medium-sized observational trials. There's one I'm thinking of specifically out of WashU where I did my fellowship in, and I think Cleveland Clinic, kind of a two-center trial that looked at patients, for example, interesting with the combination of septic shock and ARDS, at least traditionally, condition that more fluids was good. This was closer to Manny Rivers in time. And then, of course, ARDS, less fluids is good. Patients who did the worst were the ones who got inadequate initial resuscitation followed by liberal fluids. Those were the patients hmm. who had the worst outcome. The one who got, you know, hit with fluids appropriately up front and then then got conservative fluid management, did the best in that observational trial. And so you would kind of, if you believed in that observational data, which I kind of did, I uh, kind of did, maybe still do a little bit, I don't know, got to think about it. Um, you would expect um, the standard fluid to maybe even be harmful. But, you know, I think part of the problem is too, is that, you know, standard here is probably, res- you know, restricted by those standards. You know, that was in the era of CVPs and stuff. Yeah, and so that's right. we're probably that's right. comparing apples to oranges in a lot of these studies done in different decades. And I mean, you look at these, like we are talking about, should we look at, you know, ML per kg per body weight or should we look at respiratory support? You know, Jenny's mentioned echo, you mentioned focus. Uh, it just seems like, you know, the using the 
use or lack of ventilator or, or that. It's a, these are such crude measures in, in 2022, really. You know, that's the, again, this was not done here, but, you know, that's the sort of trial I think should happen in the future, right? To do this kind of arbitrary measures based on, you know, stuff that we no longer use. Uh, we should just move on. So there are, and it's impossible to summarize in 30 minutes as I, I found out trying to prepare for my ASN talk, there are lots of studies looking at specifically what you guys are talking about, more fluid responsiveness. And like ultrasound and echo is part of that, but it's only one part of it. There's all these monitoring devices that basically either non-invasively or minimally invasive estimate stroke volume. That's the kind of true definition of volume responsive. It's not actually increase in blood pressure or decrease in pressures, although that's the response I like to see when I'm trying to get someone out of the ICU, of course. And it usually corresponds with, you know, a good clinical course if that happens. You get fluids that come off pressors. But the technical definition of fluid responsiveness is an increase in stroke volume or cardiac output with a fluid challenge of some sort, whether it's a bolus you give or passive leg raise or something of the sort. Again, I suspect that is what was done, being done in the background. But those studies are small because they are a pain in the ass to do. There's a lot of you know um, components to it. There, there's a lot of physiologic data that's uh, obtained and they're cumbersome. They're cumbersome. So this... Mm -hmm was more scalable to 1,500 patients. Yeah. And so, again, you could, you can, and I did a little bit when I was reading through this, poke holes in some of these criteria and whatnot. The separation achieved is not as much as you might hope, but it's, it's hard. This, this trial is being done in real mm -hmm. time. You know, th there was mm -hmm. a, a background practice that was evolving. So, um, yeah, th there will be, there are, you know, for what it's worth, you know, you guys may have a reason to invite <laughs> me again. There's a bunch of these trials still going on on, 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 on fluids in the ICU. This is not the, this is just the start, right? This is, uh, you know, I think for better, mostly for better, 99% for better, 1% I feel for worse because every once in a while I'm like, man, I wish I was working in the 80s when I needed to like, you know, update myself like every five years. Like the amount of trials being done in critical care is amazing. It's like a, it's a golden age of critical care trials. And that's great. And it's, it's awesome. And this is one of like, you know, at least three more that I'm aware of looking at not the exact same thing, but, but similar aspects of looking at restricting fluids or, or tailoring fluids in more thoughtful ways in big multi-center trials. Excellent. Priya, did you get through all your results? Yeah, pretty much. I think that was a good way to kind of finish up the subgroups because I thought it was pretty important. Like we were talking about, you know, fluids and then respiratory status as well as over and under resuscitation at, at initial uh, admission. So yeah, that wraps up uh, the results section. Priya, what's your, what's your take on this study? What I really got out of this was I shouldn't be afraid to underdose my fluids because I can always give more. I think as someone, you know, I'm, you know, right out of training. Um, and of course, I can kind of reflect on myself. When I was younger, I would probably give a lot more fluids right up front and continue to give more fluids. Um, as I've kind of gone through this process, I'm definitely more thoughtful. And it's nice to know that me being thoughtful of this is not a bad thing, especially with ICU patients, your gut instinct is, you know, fluid, fluid, fluid. And this kind of shows that you can kind of take take a beat, think about it a little bit more. You have a little bit of wiggle room, you know, 250 cc's, 500 cc's. And in the long run, it, it doesn't seem to have a poor outcome to the patient, which is, you know, at the end of the day, what we need. So this kind of just helps me to be patient, a little bit more patient with my ICU patients. And of course, we'll have, you know, our ICU teams. But as a nephrologist, um, we always, you know, we look at those fluid balances. And that's something that we always try to make sure that we're, we're good at. Priya, you're doing a lot of transplant now. And, you know, again, I don't want to, I don't want to generalize. <laughs> no, never mind. 
I'm going to generalize. Okay. <laughs> and in my mind, from what my observation was, the last doctors to stop doing renal dose dopamine were transplant <laughs> surgeons. Okay. And I also, when I look at the volume of fluids that they give in patients, peritransplant, the, they have not heard this message at all about fluid restriction being the new hotness. They are very aggressive with fluids. And again, you know, I've only, I can only say that I've been to a handful of transplant centers. So I want to get, I want to get your perspective, having gone to the, the Ohio state. Is that right? Do I have that right? The Ohio state? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is the yeah, Ohio state. One other thing, you know, I'm from Michigan, right? And so oh we're, we're oh at, at birth, we're born to hate people from the Ohio state. <laughs> And the okay. question I have is, is there an entire class where you learn to talk about the Ohio State rather than just Ohio State? <laughs> I don't want to say that it was an official class or anything like that, but it was definitely one of the things that was all over the hospital. I mean, OSU is a great place and they're proud of it. So, um, you know, if if they're the Ohio State, like, I, I guess I can I can do that for them. I can say the Ohio State. But kind of going with your uh, volume regarding the transplant patients, I, I think this is, you know, I think it's going to be a little tough because, um, you know, when you have a fresh transplant or just like a transplant in general, I know that you want to be as delicate as possible when it comes to that transplant. Here we have infection and ICU and an admission with shock. While I definitely understand that, you know, it's necessary, I think the transplant nephrology and, um, you know, our team is very much like it's okay if they have a little bit of extra fluid on board, right? Always because we want to make sure that we're not having any type of decreased renal perfusion. But I think if anything, this kind of helps us and shows us that we might not have to always go down that route. But I think this might also change my outlook in my transplant patients, being able to hold off on, say, another 500 cc's or so uh, when, of course, they're, you know, not the fresh transplants that have this polyuria, but the ones that come in for any type of infection. So I think this will definitely change how I look at things and not necessarily always just slamming my transplant patients with IV fluid, but being far more delicate than I maybe would have done before I read this paper. Uh, Jenny, what do you got? Any final thoughts? You know, I think it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. I'm not really sure, you know, how useful this study is going to be pragmatically because we do have other tools to assess volume status, right? And and those weren't necessarily addressed here. Maybe, you know, future trials, maybe stuff that's already ongoing will kind of take that into consideration. And so I think version 2.0 of this, incorporating some of those data points like POCUS, for example, would actually probably be more relevant to current practice. So when I read this, I was a little bit underwhelmed honestly, just because I didn't really feel like it was going to be concordant with what we do at the bedside right now. I guess you could pontificate, you know, from an academic standpoint about the pros and cons of this trial, you know, just to teach about evidence-based medicine, et cetera. But from a practical standpoint, I'm not really sure um, I'm taking away anything that would change my mind about management. If, if I had a moment to talk to the, 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 people that designed this study, I would give them my condolences. I would feel, I would say, I feel so bad for you guys because you guys put together an amazing trial and you had a great question and it looks like your execution was amazing and you got 1,500 different, 1,500 milliliters difference in, your, in, in IV fluids over 90 days 
And like, who thinks that's going to make a difference, right? It's just what they wanted. They wanted that to be six liters, right? Or nine liters. They wanted to get great separate. And Pedro, you're shaking your head, but like, it's such a narrow difference in volume. I can't imagine that you were going to see much difference in outcome. I mean, I think they would agree that the effect was diluted in the end. That's a pun I made on the NFJC. But um, <laughs> all that said, the pilot had a similar, if actually slightly lower difference in the pilot. And they saw some signals. And I think, yeah, I mean, like, I think, you know, I would, if I, first of all, if I met Anders Perner, he's like a god in critical care. <laughs> so I wouldn't give him condolences. I would do what everyone else did at the critical care <laughs> reviews, which is congratulate them for a wonderfully executed trial. Not every negative trial, you know, is, is, you know, has no, you know, you can learn a lot from negative trials. I think that's important, especially in a field like critical care, where it's so hard to get a, a positive outcome. The difference was small in the end. In retrospect, you know, the signal of benefit in the, the most reasonable interpretation of the pilot trial in context of this is that that was, you know, basically a false signal. The, the AKI benefit was wasn't real. I, I agree with that. But still, if you put this in the entire context of critical care literature, starting with Manny Rivers, which gets poo-pooed a lot, but like was the first step in this process of trying to like dissect the issue of septic shock and how to resuscitate it properly, like a super important first step overwhelmingly, you know, this is like the next evolution of, the, of you know, the approach to septic shock. It is safe. This trial tells me it's safe to be restrictive. So I have been trying to, based on the observational data, limit how much fluids I give people. There are trials have shown harm from excess fluids and or, or actually both directions. You know, like there is a recent, it's not my, uh, I forget what it's called, relief, refresh. There's so many trials. It starts with an R, the acronym, but a large trial looking at resuscitation, conservative versus liberal resuscitation after major surgery, something like that. We, in, so we, uh, we did that. I think we did that in FJC last year and it was, and, and, and there was, it, harm, was harm in the restrictive group. Yeah. Exactly. Which was a, um, a very shocking finding given the previous yeah. data, which really looked like it was a slam dunk to go restrictive. Yes, right. Yeah. Interestingly, if you look at fluid resuscitation early on in septic shock in Africa, fluids are bad. Like there's two feast large trials. The feast, the feast was the first. There was a subsequent one that had a less catchy uh, acronym as well. Similar, you know, harm from resuscitation fluid. This is like, this is my life. The non-ED care of septic shock. And this strongly reinforces my current practice, which obviously, like, you don't necessarily do um, a massive trial to just, you know, reinforce current practice. But, like, it's my practice now is much more uh, on much more firm ground than it used to be. And so I think that's great. I think it's wonderful. The execution was excellent. We didn't mention some of the other sort of metrics, like the two-thirds screened enrolled is spectacular. 99%, you know, primary outcome acquisition, you know, spotless. Like, if you read the the... Um, manuscript, it's almost like Spartan, right? They have four paragraphs in their discussion, right? You know, they did this, um, you know, super cool thing where they wrote the abstract before they unblinded the results. They had like treatment A, which could have been either arm, had this result, and then treatment B had this, you know, mortality rate, and then they unblinded it. I mean, that's like, you can't be like, I am not, I'm, I'm too like biased a human being to like tolerate that exercise. I couldn't do that. I'd be like, oh my God, what's the result? I want to see my own data. I wouldn't have the intellectual discipline to do that. I think this is a spectacular trial. I love it. I think it's wonderful. And I know all you probably think it doesn't change your management, but, and that's not a wrong opinion either, because um, it may not uh, change your approach, but I think treating uh, fluids as a drug and not giving them unless there's a compelling indication should be the default. Swap, do you have any final thoughts? We'll be done with this then. So, so everyone has said really smart things. I, I, I agree that this was a really well done trial. And there's nothing to point out as, as people have said, you know, the standard of care changed over time. I, I think that this does tell you that it is safe 
to be restrictive. Uh, there may be some holdouts, right? Many reverse devotees or whoever who think that you know we should be giving more fluids. Uh, for for them, we can say, hey, you know this should be the standard of care. You know, either restrictive or maybe a little bit more, uh, but not the old days of of giving uh, tons of fluids and fill them up, uh, which is what I remember. So that's done. That's that's uh, let's not do that anymore. And maybe there are smarter ways of doing it, and more trials will be done. But I think this is you know one of those landmark trials that it, it may not change practice. But it uh, gives us confidence in what uh, in how the standard of care has changed. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Uh, so at the end, after going through the uh, the trials, we do a um, tubular secretion. We have to talk about something that we've been thinking about or have been entertained by in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I always start off with Swapmo because he always has something that gives me time to think <laughs> of my own. So Swap, do you have a tubular secretion? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so thinking of TV, you know, you you watched for all mankind, uh, and everyone I'm sure is watching the Game of Thrones prequels. Uh, I have never watched Game of Thrones, uh, so though I've read the books, so I instead I'm looking at the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, prequels, which are coming oh. up on Prime Video in in yes. a in a week or so. Yes. Uh, so so in preparation for that, I'm I'm rewatching the Hobbit and and Lord of the Rings. Ooh, the Hobbit is a rough thing to watch. That's pretty bad. Oh, I don't know. I, like I loved all of them. I loved yeah, all of those like movies. Smog. Oh, smog. I love yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch I, played uh, Smog, so yep. uh, yeah, it was yeah, it was really cool. That. You're right. Okay, excellent, excellent. Lord. But that's not. Is there even any any early reviews? Anybody? Any word on whether it's good or not? Uh, not reviews. The trailers look pretty good. Uh, the Game know? of Thrones and, got and, a pretty and good review. Yeah, Game of Thrones got pretty good reviews. Matt Smith is, is you know Doctor Who is is Prince Damon, so. I'm sure it will be good. Okay. Okay. Jenny, what do you got? So on the other spectrum, not on fantasy, um, I've actually been watching Industry on HBO Max. I don't know if that's something you all have been... What's that? What's Industry? Hmm. Industry. Uh, it's basically, it's it's about finance. So finance and trading, but all the drama that comes with being on the trading floor, you know, young people and their, how they interact with their bosses in that dynamic and just kind of the dysfunction that comes with the culture of work hard, play hard. So it's kind of like a Grey's Anatomy, but for the finance world, that's kind of what I'm thinking in terms of all the scandals and everything. And I'm sure people uh, who actually work in that field are probably like, oh, that's not what it's like. It's not that dramatic. <laughs> the way that we're just like, no, Grey's Anatomy does not represent medicine at all. <laughs> but, um, but I've actually found it to be very entertaining. And I actually got into it after... Uh, when Secession went on a break. So that was another show that I was was really into on HBO Max. And then Industry popped up as an option to watch. And then now the first season was pre-COVID. Now they've resumed after COVID and seeing the fallout from the pandemic a little bit, how it's been affecting the workforce. Excellent. Excellent. And is it is it true or is it dramatization? Drama. Yeah, for sure. It's drama. Okay. Yeah, okay. But okay. very interesting. But again, it's a completely different world. And that's probably why I find it interesting. Excellent. Uh, but I'm sure people who actually work in that are just like, no, okay. <laughs> we're not snorting cocaine, like in the bathroom off the training floor. Yeah, every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Okay, Priya, what do you got? 
Um, so I guess I'll just sandwich the whole fantasy, non-fantasy, back to fantasy. So I'm <laughs> currently watching uh, Sandman on Netflix. Ooh, I watched that, yeah. It's essentially the um, god of dreams, essentially. He finds himself in a little bit of trouble, and now you kind of walk through the episodes to see, you know, how he does. He, like, visits all these worlds and such, and it's it's really good so far. Definitely, like, a dark fantasy. Lots of characters characters that you're probably familiar with from other different fantasy worlds kind of trickle in. It's really interesting. Me and my mom, we watch it together every night. Is that a Neil it's pretty good so far. property? Yeah, it's a Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that they're, that he's basically presenting that you have to have dreams or the waking world dies in some ways. I thought, I was kind of like, really? <laughs> is, that, is that a thing? Is that a central philosophy? Yeah, I guess we're sleeping for like, you know, a third of our life, right? That's what we all say. So uh, I guess there has to be something significant happening there. So yeah, I wish I was sleeping for a third of my life right now, but it's (laughs) definitely not the case. It's amazing. We haven't heard any baby screaming in the background. But yeah, you're having a waking dream of actually dreaming. (laughs) I think this is all a dream. I'm going to wake up and find out that this podcast is all a dream. There you go. Hey, bro, what do you got? Okay, I'm going to break the TV theme and do, I'm not sure how much of this is allowed, but I'm definitely going to do a little bit of like self, uh, self-promotion, self if that's okay. Most TV I watch is Premier League soccer, and I'm a Liverpool fan, and it's a bad time to be a Liverpool fan, even <laughs> they managed to go winless. It was a bad time. <laughs> uh, winless in the first three games of the season. So the first thing I'm going to plug, it's all related to nephrology and critical care. So I um, have been so fortunate to be invited to be a faculty member at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB, CRT Academy, who's, which is run by Ashita Tawani. She's an amazing you know, human being, like a wonderful rock star, and academically, the queen of CRT. I've, I've called her, I'm not sure anyone else does, but I've started calling her the queen of CRT. But it's um, coming up on October 14th and 15th. It's still virtual this year, but we'll hopefully want to uh, be able to transition to in-person next year, but it's still a wonderful session, a bunch of brilliant faculty of which I am the most junior, but still the most thrilled to be taking part. And she may or may not fake a seizure this year during the session like she did last year as part of one of our sessions, but it's a great learning opportunity. You mentioned early, you kind of caught me off guard. I didn't probably answer the question as well as I would have liked in retrospect. You know, what's this nephrology critical care? If you want to spend a whole podcast ruminating on that, there was actually just last week a podcast dedicated to that exact topic. This is, I think, an NKF podcast called Life as a Nephrologist series. Critical Care Nephrology Challenges and Opportunities is um, the title of that specific podcast that's just came out recently. It um, includes, in terms of discussions, Jay Coiner, which, of course, has been on this uh, podcast before. He's kind of the traditional, a, a wonderful one, but a traditional like critical care nephrologist that you know, does nephrology and he's a, has an academic interest in critical care. Michael Hung, who's also similar to Jay, but an equally accomplished, brilliant guy. And then two kind of up-and-coming stars, Javier Nera of the nephrology interest in critical care mold, and then uh, Amanda Zeidman, who is also like myself, actually a critical care nephrologist at uh, Sinai. So if you want to spend some more time thinking about the career that I've dedicated myself to, I think that's a cool way to do it. Last thing I'm going to plug is relates go, uh, going back to um, the CRT Academy. Dr. Talwani was kind enough to allow invite me to co-author a CRT review that just came out last week in CJation. It's called Continuous Kidney Replacement Therapy is the title, of course. Uh, Kidney a contemporary Replacement review. Therapy, K-R-T. C- they didn't do C-K-R-T. They did Continuous K-R-T. Is what they what the CJ and editors did, but it's myself, uh, Sheeta Tawani, Javier okay. Nera, who I just plugged in his uh, podcast, who's uh, another brilliant, like-minded folk. So check all or any of those things out. 
That's a that's a wealth that will wow. You and then are you and M were applying very we're, we're, we're interviewing. Very I forgot my own program. <laughs> if anyone's interested in nephrology and wants to live in the high desert, apply to U and M. We take on cycle, off cycle, J one, X one. That's not a real thing. We take all visas. We take all people interested. You know. Oh, I didn't actually, Joel. I didn't say what my Twitter handle was up, up front, but my Twitter handle is nephcrit n e p h c r i t nephcrit underscore New Mexico or sorry underscore U N M, which stands for New Mexico. Uh, nefcrit underscore New Mexico. DM nice. me if you're interested in training in any uh, nephrology-related field in the high desert. Excellent. September September is an important month for NefJC. That uh, NefJC, we run a tight ship, and we do not spend much money running NefJC, but that does not mean we don't spend any money. And there are some costs, and there are costs in terms of editing these podcasts, there are costs in terms of hosting the website. We have uh, we give diplomas out to all of our uh, nephrology social media collective interns, and we have trophies for the uh, the NefJC Kidneys Award. You know, you can make the argument that we don't have to have uh, diplomas, and we don't have to have plaques for people who graduated. We don't have to have physical trophies, and that we could just award them a virtual good, and that would be a lot. There'd be a lot less cost there, and I think that's a fine argument, but. I kind of feel that in nephrology social media, where everything is virtual, there is some importance to having something solid, that there's some, something that you can touch, that, there's, that when you have an achievement, there is something that physically symbolizes that achievement. And so we've made the decision to get plaques and signs of achievement when you get these accomplishments. But these things cost money. And we have a 503C vehicle to fund this. It is tax deductible if you'd like to make a donation. Incorporating the 503C, we had some bylaws. And one of the bylaws is we don't take money from pharma. Full stop. Okay? So the deepest pockets in medical education are off limits to NFJC to raise money. And what our hope is, is that the people that listen and the people that get value from the products we put together and the Man, boy, the products are everywhere. It's the NefJC Twitter chat. It is almost all the visual abstracts you see in Nef Twitter, right? Even if they're done by C. Jason, you know who does them? Our people that have graduated from our internship, right? And that include, and that also includes uh, KI reviews. KI reviews does a lot KI of reports. this. KI yeah, reports KI reports and kidney medicine. And many of those tutorials and AJKD and Nef Madness. So many of the people that do this are people that have been supported by NefJC and trained by NefJC. And uh, Priya is, a, is, a, is one of the products of that, right? She's a currently <laughs> an NSMC intern and is doing a bang up job there, right? We didn't, we didn't just pick her up randomly off the street. We saw what great work she's doing. <laughs> so this is a long plea that we, we're asking you to donate, right? And uh, you can go to the website and you can see there's a couple of different levels to donate. But I want you to kind of I want, I want you to take a look at how much money you spend on ASN and how much money you spend on up to date and think hard about the value you get out of NEF Twitter and think about kicking in more than a few dollars. We're really we're looking we're, we don't need that many people to make a significant donation. We run a tight ship, like I said, but it's not it's not completely zero. So uh, that's the ask there. Sounds good. OK, great. Thanks, guys. This is great. 